this whoa this past it's okay the past week for many of you may know this already but it was the the high holy days in the Jewish tradition uh, otherwise known of the as the days of awe and it culminated by the the uh, the last day of the Days of Awe, uh, titled Yom Kippur, which is mostly translated as the uh, the Day of Atonement, a Day of Repentance, where we reflect deeply on our actions of, uh, I like to use the phrase of body, speech, and mind, and uh, ref- reflect deeply on, on uh, and on our actions, and then to um, to repent. That's the language that's used in the Jewish tradition. And I wanted to name that tonight, since I realize that inf- that I would not be here if it wasn't for the Jewish tradition. I was born in the Jewish tradition. In fact, maybe because we are all here contingent on on a myriad of non-personal conditions, none of us would be here if it wasn't for the Jewish tradition. Just as none of us would be here without the the Buddha and his realization, none of us would be here without Christ, none of us would be here without anything that's happened. We are all part of a sea of of, uh, contingencies, a sea of causes and conditions that have conspired to bring us here to this moment at this time. But I was thinking tonight about that, teasing out that those days of awe and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and thinking about how that relates to our practice, and especially at the beginning of a 100-day retreat. Because it seems to me the 100-day retreat, we're still kind of at the beginning. How many of you feel as though you're at the beginning still, for those of you who are engaged in that? It seems a wonderful time to practice what I might not call repentance or atonement, but practice forgiveness. This is a great time to fill our consciousness with the, uh, with the spirit of love and acceptance and a letting go of things that we have, uh, either grudges we have held against ourselves. Any of you have any of those? Grudges against others the big monolithic others or specific people, but mostly it begins by uh, bringing forgiveness to ourselves. And if I consider the first days of our 100-day retreat as the days of awe, and they happen to coincide with the the way I think of the days of awe, I'm not going to give the, the Jewish interpretation, but the days of awe remind me of the the Tibetan Buddhist concept of emaho, the uh, the sense of how amazing, how indescribable, how how every moment, in a sense, each moment that we have here is a moment of awe, of wonder, of of a sense that it is impossible to explain it. It's impossible to put words on the direct experience of what we of what we are and what we experience right now. And that it's very easy in the span of our life to completely forget the sense of awe. 
and to live as though we know what's happening. To live as though we know what will happen next. Live as though uh, things are explainable. Now what I've discovered over the course of, of, it's now 40 years of meditation practice, I can't believe it, is that I am more in a state of awe than I've been, more than I was when I started. I've unlearned knowing. It doesn't mean that I've become spaced out or unplugged. It means that I, ha- I, have, I know that I don't know. And so I'm more often than not in a state of what the, t- what the Korean Zen teachers call don't know mind. Their, their central practice is keeping don't know mind. Keeping a state of awe. They say, who are you? You think you know, you don't know. Don't know mind. Keep don't know mind. Because don't know mind is the mind to which discovery can happen. So the days of awe to me, the early days of our retreat is, I don't know what will happen. But I know, I can know, that this moment is indescribable. And I can know from experience. Some things you can know. And I know that when, that this, that every moment being as open and awesome and as unexplainable as it is, it makes every moment a, a field of creative possibility. That every moment is that. So every moment is pregnant with possibilities. It's not complete. It's not, I mean, it's not, it isn't decided how things will be. But that creative field, whatever gets planted in that creative field, seems to produce some kind of result. And what I've seen in reflection is when I've planted the seed of, of goodwill, of what's been a regular reflection for me, regular seed that I've planted is the seed of what's often just called a bodhicitta the, in the Tibetan tradition that bodhicitta is the, the desire to awaken for the benefit of, of all beings and it's an altruistic intention and I've over the many years I've planted that seed a lot every single time I sit every time before I hit that gong I say a few words internally may this sitting be for the welfare and benefit of all beings may whatever I offer be for the benefit of all beings and then finally I say may my life be for the benefit of all beings and I can feel planting that seed again and again without any certainty about what would unfold I have noticed over the many many years of doing this that my life has just slowly slowly moved into this stream into this stream of um, actually feeling that my life does not belong to me, that it really does belong to us, to the myriad of, of beings who cross my path. And so I don't feel, just from that simple seed being planted, I feel myself much more closely connected to all beings. Uh, the beings who are nearest and dearest or beings who have to live with me every day as well as beings that uh, I even feel the connection with beings that are that I can't see at all 
And that it's simply a matter of turning, turning my attention, turning the um, attention toward that, that um, creative possibility, and then seeing what happens. So when we enter into these days of openness, these days of creative possibility, to me, part of the, the experiment is to plant the seed of whatever it is that expresses the deepest understanding that we know is possible. The deepest understanding that I know is possible is somewhat reflected in the Buddha's teaching on liberation. That one of, one of the most inspiring teachings, one of the things that inspires me every day, is the potential to have in this, to experience in this very life, in this very moment, not postponing it for one moment, but to experience a release of our heart from clinging, grasping, contentiousness, conflict, the possibility of living this life moment by moment, un, um, unburdened by, um, by uh, the effects of past action, unburdened by memory, free to be, free to discover, free to live more in that state of, of awe, in that state of wonder. You could take all the teachings of the Buddha and they all come down to this potential for liberation that comes through letting go, through non-clinging. One of the places that clinging functions so much as a hindrance for us in our lives is in holding ourselves hostage to our past actions, holding others hostage to their past actions. And and forgiveness, it seems to be such a, um, a useful seed to plant. And as well, not just a seed to plant, but an act of awakening and liberation itself. As the Zen uh, teacher Dogen put it, meditation is not a means of enlightenment, it is enlightenment itself. So forgiveness is not a means of awakening, but it is an expression of awakening itself. So I was reflecting this evening while I was sitting. Excuse me. <laughs> on all the, all the uh, things that I f- think it's useful to forgive ourselves for. And first and most obvious and very superficial in a way, but could be very profound, is forgiving ourselves for our uh, maniacal minds. And this is something we, we sit down and, and our best attempt is to be able to shape our mind to abide evenly, openly, our heart at ease in the present moment. And without any prompting at all, what happens? Completely unbidden, a flywheel, a waterfall, a stream of, of as it's said in the statistics, 65,000 thoughts come flowing through our mind. That's how many supposedly we have each day. 
and the rest of the, the statistic is that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. But these arise unbidden and due to, due to our conditioning, due to conditioning and the presence of a particular mental factor the Buddha called uh, avijja or ignorance or otherwise known as wrong view, those 65,000 thoughts are taken quite personally. Now, did any of you notice that happen? And did any of you notice, even in the course of the sitting this evening, the simple attention to put the mind in the body, the body in the mind, appreciate the amazingness of the body, the body breathing, the awesomeness of, of this life breath, how many breaths were you with before attention just went off into one of those little thought worlds with you, the imagined you as the central character in that drama that was playing in your mind? How many of you, when you woke up to where you were, gave yourself a little jab for having been so lost in thought? Now that... That criticism, that judgment, that uh, lack of forgiveness or acceptance of that comes from, from ignorance. It doesn't come because you're a bad meditator. Because it comes because you, you believe that whatever it is that went through your mind, whatever your mind did, is your fault. It's not your fault. That happens all by itself. So one doorway to forgiveness and acceptance is to see things the way they are. The famous line from J. Krishnamurti where he says, it's the truth that liberates, not our effort to be free. So we're all busy trying to quiet our minds and, and have, have as little discursive thought as possible. Do you, does that resonate with you at all? But then our minds are, are filled with those 65,000 thoughts. And then there's the view that I'm thinking. And we fail to see clearly the truth that the thoughts are their own thinkers. That those thoughts come unbidden. Not only are they their own thinkers, they're, all, they're driven to a great degree by little reactions. Little reactions that are usually outside of our radar. Reactions of liking and disliking to either a thought that came, a sensation that came, a mood that came, and a little tension is created, and that tension spawns a lot more discursive thinking. All of that happens completely involuntarily. But because of avijja, because of ignorance, that whole process is taken very personally, and then we create a new identity called the meditator, who's to blame for not, being, for not meditating well. All that's an extra little story. It doesn't point to anyone. So one way of, of bringing a letting go is seeing the thoughts of their own thinker. But another way is to recognize... I wanted to be quiet, but I'm not. And I forgive, my, I forgive my mind for being so out of control. How do you feel when you say that one moment? I forgive my mind for being so out of control. We all want our bodies 
to be, there's a tendency to want our bodies to be different than the way they are. We're so caught up in either body image or in, in ideals of, of health, and, which is natural. We all, everybody wants to be healthy. We have all kinds of ideals. But our bodies tend to operate accord, not necessarily according to our will or wish, have you noticed? You can't tell them not to get old. You can't tell them not to die. You can tell them that, but they, we, we all do. and we all, we all die. And I loved what Steve Jobs uh, I had to... I hope all of you at some point listened to his commencement speech that he gave at Stanford University in 2005 where he talked about death as the... Uh, as the greatest design of, of life, the ultimate change agent. Uh, that reminds us that, uh, of the basic insecurity of life and not to pretend that we, that we um, have anything to lose. We're, we're already naked, he says. But somehow, when we feel ourselves aging or becoming less healthy, there's a tendency to make a case against ourselves that something's wrong. That also comes out of ignorance, not remembering that things are... This is the definition of birth, is the leading cause of death. And not remembering that, uh, that the death is certain, the one who's born, and also the time of death is completely uncertain, that we just don't know. And that that's how it is for everyone. It is, it's not just me. And it's not just me that experiences that because of the tendency to identify with our bodies that I experience some degree of insecurity. Don't, don't want don't to die. Don't want to go through that. You, does anybody here want to go through that? Nobody does. It's built in. But then we, there's a tendency to, um, once we get a hold of the Dharma, to start judging our insecurity judging our fragility, judging our, our um, shifting, the shifting winds of our health. So forgiving our body, another, seems like a very nice thing to do. Forgive your body for not showing up the way that you wanted it to. Try that for just one moment. I forgive you, body. I forgive you for not being as thin, not being as strong, not being as beautiful, not being as, as what's another one about the body? Not being, what's that? Agile, not being as agile, not being as cellulite free. <laughs> that's good, that's good. There's got to be a few more in this room. It sounds like you're, you've thought about this matter. Can we come to a place of freedom and acceptance with our body and forgiveness of our body? Please, Noemi. Well, she says it's difficult because when you live in a society that makes you concerned about your body. Yes, and we we all have to fight the both the uh, the impulse to um, to fall into the kind of cultural 
because we live in a big cult. The cultural uh, definition of how you're supposed to be, but it, we also have to pay attention to not creating the idea of a culture that does something to us. That and that thinking itself turns us into victims. So we have to really see our mind, the way our mind keeps creating um, that um, difficulty and acceptance. So forgiving um, life, the Dharma. How many of you want your life to be different than the way it is? So how many would you say are in contention with reality? In conflict with the Dharma? You don't want to admit that you're in conflict with the Dharma. But when we're in conflict with our life, we're in conflict with the Dharma. You know, the Dharma is, for those of you who don't know, the Dharma is the word that's used for, for the way things are, the truth. It's also referred to as the teachings, the Dharma, the teachings of awakening. But it's really, the Dharma is truth. The Dharma is you. Dharma are, is things the way they are. So if you're in conflict with your life, you're in conflict with, with truth. And guess what happens if you're in conflict with the Dharma? The Dharma wins. <laughs> <laughs> So we have to forgive the Dharma. We have to forgive life. Because you can, you can just be railing against life for throwing me all these curveballs. Of course, the wisdom is that everybody, if you were born, not only is it the leading cause of death, it's a leading cause of a whole array of stresses that every single person, no matter who you are, faces. Everybody. Things you want that you don't have, Things that you have that you don't want, things that you that you own that you will lose, things you're near, things that are near, and people who you are near and dear to, who go away, who will go away. It is true for everyone. Everybody, nobody is immune to the Dharma. It's just how it is. So we have to. Sometimes it helps to forgive life for being so challenging but ultimately it is the not only is the is as Steve Jobs says the death the ultimate uh, change agent but stress is the ultimate compassion agent all of the things that we have to open to that's what that's what tenderizes our hearts that's what that's what humbles us that's what allows us to then walk walk in someone else's moccasins. What were you going to say, Carlos? Howie, I'm wondering about thinking about courage. Courage? The concept of courage, the idea of courage might work into what we're talking about. Courage could work into, but I want to stick with forgiveness, but but I think courage is a great thing. Forgiveness is the... is the movement of letting go. It's the movement of our heart opening. It's the movement of saying, I am heir to a lot of conditioning 
the fact that I was born, I'm just subject to all the conditioning of being born. I have one of these minds. I have one of these bodies. I have all these difficult circumstances. And I know that if I fight with this, I'm going, I struggle. And what can help me be less in contention with reality? And that, what seems very central to the, the Buddha's teaching, is, is letting go and forgiveness. And I actually brought along a few teachings on forgiveness tonight. Some, many of you have heard before, but just simple acts of forgiveness. I thought this one was very sweet. And being somebody who loves the game of golf, this is about Roberto Di Vincenzo. He's a great Argentine golfer. He once won a tournament, and after receiving the check and smiling for the cameras, he went to the clubhouse and prepared to leave. Sometime later, he walked alone to his car in the parking lot and was approached by a young woman. She congratulated him on his victory and then told him that her child was seriously ill and near death. She did not know how she would pay the doctor bills and the hospital expenses. Di Vincenzo was touched by her story, and he took out a pen and endorsed his winning check for payment to the woman. Make some good days for the baby, he said as he pressed the check into her hand. The next week, he was having lunch in a country club when a professional golf association official came to his table. Some of the boys in the parking lot last week told me you met a young woman there after you won that tournament. Di Vincenzo nodded. Well, said the official, I have news for you. She's a phony. She has no sick baby. She's not even married. She fleeced you, my friend. You mean there's no baby who is dying, said Di Vincenzo? That's right, said the official. That's the best news I've heard all week, Di Vincenzo said. <laughs> Unexpected flavor of forgiveness. Reconciliation and, and integration for, which is a kind of process of forgiveness that some ancient tribes go through. This is the, from the Babemba tribe of South Africa. In that tribe, when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly, he is placed in the center of the village alone and unfettered. All work ceases, and every man, woman, and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual. You can think of gathering around all of the judgments that you have about yourself. Put them in the middle of the circle. Then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused, one at a time, about all the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his lifetime. Every incident, every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted. All his positive attributes, good deeds, strengths, and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length. The tribal ceremony often lasts several days. At the end, the tribal circle is broken, a joyous celebration takes place, and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe. We have a little different system here. <laughs> I 
I was tempted not to read this since it's been read many times here on Tuesday night, but I know that there are those who've never heard this before, so I, I go ahead anyway with a story of forgiveness from Jack Cornfield. No matter how extreme the circumstances, a transformation of the heart is possible. Once on the train from Washington to Philadelphia, I found myself seated next to an African-American man who had worked for the State Department in India, but had quit to run a rehabilitation program for juvenile offenders in the District of Columbia. Most of the youths he worked with were gang members who had committed suicide. One 14-year-old boy in his program had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. At the trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end, when the youth was convicted of the killing. After the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared directly at him and stated, I'm going to kill you. Then the youth was taken away to serve several years in a juvenile juvenile facility. After the first half year, the mother of the slain child went to visit his his killer. He had been living on the streets before the killing, and she was the only visitor he'd had. For a time they talked, and then when she left, she gave him some money for cigarettes. Then she started step by step to visit him more regularly, bringing food and small gifts. Near the end of his three-year sentence, she asked him what he would be doing when he got out. He was confused and very uncertain, so she offered to set him up with a job at a friend's company. Then she inquired about where he would live, and since he had no family to return to, she offered him a temporary use of the spare room in her home. For eight months he lived there, ate her food, worked at the job. Then one evening she called him into the living room to talk. She sat down opposite him and waited. Then she started. Do you remember in the courtyard when I said I was going to kill you? I sure do, he replied. Well, I did, she went on. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you the job and let you live in my house. That's how I set about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone and that killer is gone, if you'll stay here. I've got room. I'd like to adopt you if you let me. And she became the mother and her, of her son's killer, the mother he never had. So if she can forgive, we can forgive ourselves for whatever we've done knowingly or unknowingly, whatever we have thought knowingly and unknowingly, whatever we have said knowingly or unknowingly. And this is a a wonderful thing, I think, to do for a hundred days straight, every day to do some forgiveness practice. It doesn't take a lot of time. It starts with, with oneself. That whole process of letting go starts with oneself. The traditional phrases used are, if I have caused any harm to myself, knowingly or unknowingly, or caused any harm to anyone else, 
I ask for forgiveness and I forgive myself to the best of my ability at this time. Knowing that forgiveness is a process. You can see with this fellow, with this mother and, uh, and this, his, her son's killer, it was a gradual process of whittling away at, the, at, the, at her own ill will, I'm sure. But slowly, slowly, if we plant that seed in this field of creative possibility, you may find that you actually come to love yourself and accept yourself. So I ask for forgiveness and I forgive myself as much as I'm able. Then if anyone has, we move on and we say, if anyone has harmed me by their thoughts, their words, their actions, knowingly or unknowingly, by what they did or what they didn't do, to the best of my ability at this time, I forgive you, forgive them. And we find our own way to generate that, that feeling of letting go. I find it helpful to, to both plant these seeds of forgiveness, forgiving myself, forgiving others, asking forgiveness for anything I may have done or didn't do, anything I said or didn't say, any, anything I thought or didn't think, any obliviousness. I ask for forgiveness from anyone who has felt harmed by my words, thoughts, or actions. So that's one way, is to ask for and extend forgiveness. The other is to just reflect on the Dharma, on our, our imperfections, that all of us, we wouldn't be here if we didn't have some measure of greed that blinds us to that maniacal mind that says that I, that I have to have more to be happy. That maniacal mind that... that makes our view so narrow, our heart so tight, our happiness so hostage that we all have that. We all have hatred. We all incline toward judgment, toward ill will. We all have that conditioning. We all, innocently, we try to defend against the, the vulnerability of life by, by trying to control it, trying to control it through making other people agree with us, uh, making, uh, trying to get everything that we want, and we get, inevitably, we get the two causes of anger and ill will, frustrated desire, and inevitably, the other cause, wounded pride. And then we keep defending by getting angry. And we defend against uh, just the basic fragility of our, of our ego, of our personality view. We need to forgive that too. But as, I don't know how many of you have been exposed to David Roach, a wonderful guy who, had a, who was born with a physical disfigurement, uh, but uh, used it for his awakening. And he started this wonderful church called the Church of 80% Sincerity, realizing that we're not going to be 100% anything. We'll be 80% awake, 80% sincere, 80% <laughs> free of ill will, 80% loving, 80% everything. And if you, it's a, it's a recipe for acceptance. It's wisdom. 
So we mix wisdom with the seeds of goodwill and loving kindness over and over. So for a hundred days, if you can, the rest of the hundred days, a few minutes of forgiveness and a few minutes of reflecting that you can't help the way you are. As my friend Wes says, you are not your fault. I think I shared last week the words of Bhante Gunaratna where he said somewhere in the process of meditation you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way and you never noticed. So you can see we develop wise understanding and inevitably with wise understanding we develop a sense of humor. Because otherwise, as Wavy Gravy says, it's not funny. (laughs) So we laugh at ourselves. We make peace with life. We forgive life. And with that I'd like to end with the English and the Spanish version of Amado Nervo, Amado Nervo's poem called At Peace. And I want to invite Andrea to read the Spanish after I read the English, since it was originally written in Spanish. But in English it goes like this, Very close to my sunset, I bless you, life, because you never gave me false hope, nor unjust work, nor undeserved suffering. And now as I reach the end of my worn road, I see that truly I was the architect of my destiny. That if I was able to extract the honey or the bitterness from things, it was only because it was I who put the honey and bitterness into them. Whenever I planted rose bushes, I always harvested roses. It is true after my flourishing, winter will follow. But you didn't promise me that May was eternal. Without a doubt, there were long, painful nights, but you never promised me only good ones. However, I experienced many that were blessedly peaceful. I loved, I was loved, the sun caressed my face. Life, you owe me nothing. Life, we are at peace. In Spanish, Andrea. And just a little background about this poet. He wrote this uh, right before he died, I think at the age of 42, so he's quite young. And he lost his spouse after only being married for about five years and lost both of his parents at a very young age. So he definitely experienced some suffering. So in Spanish... Muy cerca de mi ocaso, yo te bendigo vida, porque nunca me diste ni esperanza fallida, ni trabajos injustos, ni pena inmerecida. Porque ve el final de mi rudo camino, que yo fui el arquitecto de mi propio destino. Que si yo extraje la miel o la hiel de las cosas, fue porque en ellas puse hiel o mieles sabrosas. Cuando planté rosales, coseché siempre rosas. Cierto, a mis lozanías va a seguir el invierno, mas tú no me dijiste que macho fuese eterno. Hallé sin duda largas noches de mis penas, mas no me prometiste tú solo noches buenas. Y en cambio, tuve algunas santamente serenas. Amé, fui amado, el sol acarició mi faz, 
Vida, nada me debes. Vida, estamos en paz. Thank you. Thank you. Let's just be quiet for a moment. Let's bathe for a moment in the field of acceptance and forgiveness. And with whatever you experience as a fruit of being here, any benefit, any blessing, any goodness, anything that's been helpful to your life and your practice, we, we gather it together and we give it away freely to, to all beings, any of the blessings of our practice. And we share the blessings with a deep wish that all beings can have happiness and peace in their lives and the causes of happiness and peace increasing. That all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing. A deep wish that all beings can recognize the sacred happiness that is without sorrow here and now. And a deep wish that all beings can grow in serenity, forgiveness, acceptance, boundless equanimity that can be able to absorb and experience the joys and the sorrows with less reactivity. Finally, a deep wish that our practice today and every day, our life, our work, be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all, remembering that we do not exist alone apart from each other. May all beings be touched by our life and practice. May all beings be liberated. for hanging in there a few minutes late. A few brief announcements. Uh, we could use some helps putting, help putting away the chairs. Then any of the chairs after that second pillar of the second pillar where the chairs start, uh, after the second pillar, those chairs need to go off to the side, piled up along the wall. Much appreciation for that. Just a reminder of our $150 a night room rental. Any room rental Donna, generosity, freely offered for the room rental there and any of the teaching that's offered here by me or anyone is offered as as a offered freely and invitation is for you to offer freely uh, some support if you feel to if you can in the form of uh, money in the basket and thank you for both room rental and teacher Donna as usual it allows the wheel to keep rolling, and mostly thank you for your practice. That's also a practice of generosity. Thanks for your presence here. That's a real act of generosity to everyone. So thanks, and you are all forgiven. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.